0: Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive. As the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If I meet somebody and they're like, oh, you're
1: you're, uh, I saw you on cooking show. You're Chef Jarvis. I'm like, yeah. They're like, oh yeah, I'm a chef too. I immediately look at their hands. That's the first thing I do. What
0: do you see in the, in a chef's hands? I see scars.
1: I see pain. I see stories. I see tattoos uh, other forms of masochism I see things that would have kicked anybody else out of this industry but you're still here I see uh, an attitude that's hidden behind professionalism I see character in their voice I can listen to the way they describe food and I'm like you're not a chef big guy like you just you like cooking right and I can probably listen to you for 10 minutes and tell you why you like cooking but it isn't because you're a chef it's her
0: ratio. Okay, though. It's her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> you're a phenomenal person. I mean, you're legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. Black chefs are artists, scientists, magicians. They deliver amazing food while advancing the rich tradition of African-American cuisine. I've been wanting to do a series of interviews with black chefs on this show, and today we're launching into that. We start with Chef Jarvis Belton, who is the head chef for Google and the head chef at Slutty Vegan. Now, he's a private chef and he's killing the game. Let's get into it. It's Chef Jarvis Belton on Touré Show. So I live in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. I had never heard of Slutty Vegan, but one Saturday night I'm walking up the street and there's like a hundred people waiting in line on a Saturday night at Slutty Vegan. That's it? And this was not day one. Yeah. This must have probably been like day like five, six, seven. I hadn't just come that way for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's like an hour long line. Oh, yeah. That shit for Slutty Vegan. What yeah. is that? I had never heard of the brand, but I knew like clearly this is hot because <laughs> yeah. a ton of black people are waiting. And I'm like Slutty Vegan. I can I immediately kind of get the vibe, and it's perfect for Brooklyn, right? But what is what is Slutty Vegan? You're you're a critical part of the story, so just help us understand what is Slutty Vegan and how you what what you did for the brand. Sure, uh, I believe Slutty Vegan is. It's a lifestyle
1: come to fruition to describe to people that veganism is more than just what you consume. It's more than just food. It's more than a, a limited notion of options that people have now considered to, or past considered to be. You think of veganism, you think of like cardboard and salads with no bacon on them and <laughs> vinaigrettes that don't have cream and, you know, really narrow people walking around with narrow minds and, Thinking about, you know. They
0: don't have to be narrow-minded. Not, My know, wife is vegan. They don't have to be yeah, narrow-minded. No, She's but they don't have to be narrow-minded.
1: No offense to any, you know, any vegans, but that's the concept of non-vegans to vegans. Like If I told you I was a vegan over the phone when I arrived, you'd be surprised if I was six foot three, 245 pounds and muscular. And now you're seeing vegans on Instagram pop up and they're like, just eating fruit. And they're swollen, they're jacked, and it's like, when did this happen? You're vegan. I am not vegan. Okay, I'm not vegan, but but, just you, for the but sake you can of the, be for the sake of example, athlete. You can, you can be an athlete yeah. and be totally vegan, right? Yeah. Um, some of the world. But
0: you're saying it's a it's a lifestyle. It's not just the food. It's what clothes do you wear? Sure. What shampoo do you use? Are you trying to be? animal cruelty-free in your whole life?
1: So I can't speak for all the vegans because again, I'm not a vegan, but I do believe that they take into consideration a lot of things that non-vegans don't even bat an eye about. Uh, For example, I bought a backpack probably six weeks ago and I saw vegan leather on it. (laughs) I'm like, this backpack five or six years ago would have just said faux leather. (laughs) <laughs> right? But now they slap veganism on it because they know it's a trend or a craze that a lot of people attach themselves to yeah. when there are other people who have been living that lifestyle for 10, 15, 20 years. So I think slutty vegan kind of pushed it to the forefront of like what's cool, what's popular, what's hip. And you can have fun being a vegan just as much, if not more fun being a vegan than a lot of people who are not vegan.
0: The slutty vegan vibe is very fun, mm-hmm. right? It It's it sort of it's sort of, I mean, like like fun, fast food, but it's like vegan, it's right, gonna, right? right? And like a lot of vegan places are very like, almost like you go into like a Buddhist monastery. It's sure. very religious and sure. serious and self-serious and, you know, and we're, bear, you know, Brussels sprouts or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is like, you know, fun names, fun looking food, right? Like like that's part of the whole joy of it. Right, and I think slightly Vegan did a great job of removing the
1: butt, right? So even when you just described it, you said this, that, and the third, but it's vegan, right? And a lot of the fun and the excitement and the the enjoyment of I'm going to a vegan restaurant or I'm going to a restaurant as a vegan is stifled with the butt. So I'm going to a restaurant, but I wonder if they have something for me to eat
0: there. Like right? veganism is a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it shouldn't
1: be, right? It shouldn't be if that's the way you choose to live your life, like you should have the same amount of options as, as you know, somebody who's not a vegan. Right. Study vegan brought that to the forefront.
0: So what did you bring to the mix? You talked about there were, this is an Atlanta brand, Pinky Cole founder, brainstorm in the middle of the night, food trucks, goes to one restaurant, but when she needs to expand, how do you get into the story? So Pinky Cole did a great job at, delivering
1: the foundation of Slutty Vegan prior to me even arriving, right? And when she looked to expand to her Edgewood location or Jonesboro location, she brought me on not to fix the food because there was nothing wrong with it, but to make it more attractive to non-vegan eaters, right? So there are a ton of people behind the scenes that did a hell of a job on you know their respective parts, but me looking at a burger saying, seared a little bit longer, get that Maillard reaction because that crisp, we all know when we put something in the pan and it, that that's another dimension. You can look at food, you can touch food, you can taste food, but when you can hear food, I watch cooking shows and I'm gonna veer off a little bit. I watch cooking shows and I see somebody grab a piece of chicken, grab a pan from up underneath the counter, throw the chicken in the pan, walk to the stove and put it on the stove and then they turn on the fire. I'm like, there's just no way in hell. It's not going to happen, right? You, you're not going to you gonna have to have it. it on. They have to pan hot before you put the food you in. You got to have the pan on <laughs> hot before you add the oil. You have to have the oil hot before you add the food, right? Or you won't get that Maillard reaction, that brown crisp or crust that just taste that's the only way a chef can create food or create flavor, I should say. Uh, a raspberry is going to taste like a raspberry.
0: Uh, chicken is going to taste like chicken. Well, you said that, that's the only way the chef can create flavor. What, do you, what, is, what is the that? sure so if you eat a pear like the
1: pear comes out of uh off the tree tasting like a pear you don't yeah. create that flavor it already exists yeah you might marry it with puff pastry and make a tart but you didn't create that flavor a lobster is going to taste like a lobster you just add salt or whatever you want to it rice is going to taste bland like rice things taste like what they are yeah. but the only way i can create flavor outside of marrying two flavors together to create something different is that maillard reaction which is why boiled chicken does not taste as good as fried chicken, in my opinion. Boiled chicken does not taste as good as seared chicken, right? You drop that, that chicken, that chicken breast or thigh, into that pan with sizzling butter, maybe some garlic, maybe some thyme, and you sear it off, get that Maillard react, that crust on, both, or crust on both sides. You run into the oven, you pull it out, and you cut into that, that cooked piece of chicken. It's going to taste so much better than a piece of chicken you just pulled out of boiled water because I created that flavor with that technique.
0: So, okay. So this is part of what you brought to Slutty Vegan. Cook it longer so you get that reaction. What else?
1: Uh, also their drinks. Uh, Slutty Vegan really wasn't selling. Uh, they were selling ready-made lemonades and they were great. I, mean, I love them. Uh, but I created a whole nother vibe. Uh, so the outside experience has always existed with Slutty Vegan. That I,
0: you were physically outside the store. Physically outside in the, the, the store. In the line. Two hours. Talking, sometimes longer. Uh, Vibing Making friendships, vibing. taking right.
1: pictures, right. being on Instagram or whatever. Now, that was all outside. But at their Ralph David Abernathy location, once you got inside, the goal is once you order, you should be out in six minutes because it's still considered over the counter of fast food, right? Right. It's not a sit down restaurant. You order and nobody wants to stand there for 10 or 15 or 30 minutes inside the restaurant because it's literally about a 40 foot stretch. And it's bad for the it's, restaurant. Yeah, It's bad for the, the flow. You're it going fewer. Flow. Yeah. So the other locations, we made it more of a, a inside experience where you still might you might wait outside for 45, 30 minutes, but once you get inside, it's 10 or 15 minutes because we want you to sit at the bar. I, mean, I created a bar. I was there during the designing phase. I helped create the bar. Uh, I did all of the beverages originally. I did all the lemonades, uh, did the liquor infused. And when I tell you we could not keep them on the shelf, they were flying <laughs> off the shelf. And here I am, the executive chef of the company, and my grand staple was, was the beverages, right? The, the because the food was already good. food was great. Fries were great, the seasoning was great. Seasoning was already in a bottle. But I created beverages, I saw a hole, I saw a void, and I said, let me fill that void. And now people come in, there's a giant wheel on the wall where someone walks up, they spin that wheel and it might land on free slut dust, it might land on free small fry, might land on free beverage or $10 off, whatever it lands on. But that's what everybody who spins that wheel would get if they you know, first or second person in line or the last person in line with the golden ticket. So I created more of an experience inside the store where Slutty Vegan was well-known for his experience outside of the store prior
0: to me. That's kind of a big differentiator. Like a certain level of restaurant, it's a, it's a very quiet experience. Oh yeah. Right? And th- But then- as you go to a certain, let's say, faster preparation of the food, it's more of a loud circus presentation sure. experience. Sure. You know why that is? No. So
1: what I contribute to the reason behind that that what you what you just described, social media. You only have the attention mm. span of someone for about 10 or 15 seconds, right? You're having a conversation. You start talking, hey, I want to go to X, Y, and Z restaurant. Eventually, you'll see their eyes kind of wandering off, and they're like, what the hell else could I be talking about besides this? So once they get in the restaurant, you got to capture their attention. You got to grab it, and you got to hold on to it for as long as possible. If that's three minutes, then I can sell them a drink in 60 seconds. I can sell them two drinks in two minutes. If they have four people with them, I can sell them five drinks. That's my goal, is when they get in here, let's upsell the hell out of them, and let's let them leave more satisfied than they thought they would when they first walked into the door right? Whether it's beverages, whether it's paraphernalia or not paraphernalia, whether it's, um, vegan ice cream from, you know, the little snack bar over there that they never would have saw yeah. if they would have came in here and got their food in three, but whatever it is, how can I keep you here? And that's what every company wants to do. They want to keep you here for as long as possible. So you spend more money.
0: So we, but the thing that surprises me is that the main customer of slutty vegan is not vegan true.
1: That's true. Uh, I can't really describe why that is outside of everybody wants to experience something new, right? You want to experience something new. You want to experience something different. People don't buy high-end cars because they're expensive. They buy them because they're different, right? You walk outside, you see a million Toyotas, a million Hondas, but that one Lamborghini, the test throws to the Bentley, they're like, wow, that's different, Right? Yeah. And if you've been eating Burger King and Shake Shack and all of this other type of food for so long and you're like Slutty Vegan pops up, I want to try Slutty Vegan because it's different. So we're going to get you in the it's, door it's because fun. it's different and it's vibrating, right? Yes, it's, it's vibrant. It's, it's vibrant and it's an uh, it's experience that other people want to experience with you. People go to Slutty Vegan with people. Like, hey, do you want to go to Slutty Vegan? Yeah. yeah. Five or six people together and it's like a road trip type deal, even if it's a block away.
0: But but you're pulling in non-vegans because it's a more interesting vegan experience. You're getting some vegans, but you're getting a lot of... I mean, it's kind of amazing to have a business that's asking people to cross over from... And just because you're not vegan doesn't mean you can't have a vegan meal, sure, sure. right? But like, you know, a lot... My, like I said, my wife is vegan. Every meal is that, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't really want to eat that way, right? Right. But I can see where, where this brand... And the excitement around it would make me say like all right well i'll, I'll mess with that there you go
1: and that's all that's all Slated vegan wanted to do they wanted to bring people in to say hey veganism is not boring right there's not this grayscale in front of veganism that you have to rip down and break through just to enjoy something that's vegan
0: this show is sponsored by better help the most important relationship in your life is your relationship with yourself. Are you your own best friend supporting you or do you criticize yourself and limit yourself? Do you have toxic habits you want to escape? Therapy can be an amazing place to work on yourself and become a better version of yourself. You really should learn how to speak to yourself in a loving, supportive way and maybe uproot some of the moments from your past that still bother you deep down. If you think you might want to give therapy a try, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient to your schedule, and it could make you feel better about yourself and make your life better. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com today and get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door... Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. So, so this cooking, has, it's all, has this always been the thing for you? Yes. Was there ever another dream? I wanted to play football. Okay. I to play football. I wanted
1: to go to the NFL when I was very young, knee-high to a grasshopper, carry around football and think I was just going to run everybody over. Then I got to high school and I ran everybody over and it was like rotator cuffs were like, hey, better stop lowering your shoulder and running people over. So, you know, (laughs) wait, where was this? uh, Bay High Tornadoes. I played. Ooh, even saying that, I don't think I said the name of that school in twenty years. Uh, But it was in Panama City, Florida. Oh, so that's serious. Panama City, Florida. The serious, serious high school ball there. Oh yeah, and and you were running back. I was a free safety. And people okay. would come across the middle, and I'd lower my shoulder, and I would light them up to <laughs> it.
0: The one who delivers the Man, punishment.
1: if the ball didn't leave their hands, I didn't do a good job. <laughs> I'd take myself out the game and say, try again next time. Get back in three plays later. It got so bad that I remember getting benched because my coach was like, you had three interceptions this game. And yet you missed them because you wanted to hit them. And I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm like a fumble is just as good as an interception, right? But if it's incomplete wow. passed, they still have the ball. Wow. So. I did want to be a football player uh, way young, but interesting story. Uh, I hadn't talked to my father in about 21 years. Why? It's been a very long time. He left when I was uh, six, seven years old. And I had gone through college, did did everything that I wanted to do. Morehouse. In life. Went to Morehouse. graduated in 09. I went to Le Cordon Bleu. And it was at the end of my matriculation through Le Cordon Bleu as I was traveling the world. I forgot like my Facebook password or something. And very corny, but part of the story. And I'm looking on how to reset your password. It's like, what's your mother's maiden name? Know that, right? What's your father's first car? I don't know. Next. What's your father's, uh, what what high school did your father go to? I don't know. Why are you guys picking on me? That's me something I can <laughs> I can Get answer, alone. right? Third question was like, um, something else about my dad. Like, what was his, who was his prom date? Or something just weird. And I'm like, you know what? Let me ask him. Where I hadn't heard this man's voice in 21 years. He hadn't heard mine in 21. And you years. just decided just to call him. I picked up the phone. I researched researched him, found his phone number, and I called him. And he answers the phone. He says, Hello? I said, Yeah, is this Wardell? He says, This is. Who's this? I said, It's your son. And I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I said, It's your son. And pause. My dad has nine kids, he had two kids before my mother. He had three kids with my mother. He married into, after my mother, he married into a family that had two pre existing kids and had two kids with her. So he has
0: nine kids. And what number are you with your mom? Uh,
1: with my mom, I'm number two, middle, right? But okay. number five overall.
0: Okay.
1: And so that's just a caveat. So you so, say,
0: it's your son. It's your son. And he said, which one?
1: No. <laughs> no. He says, Jarvis? knew. And I'm like, Holy hell Called the voice. He hasn't heard my voice in 21 years. So obviously, he doesn't know how our son is an adult. It just got deeper. And he said, "Jarvis?" Say, "Yeah." He said, "Man, look, I just clocked into work. I just clocked into work. Let me call you back when I get off this uh get off my shift. I promise you I'll call you back." And I said, "You know what? Never mind. Don't you don't don't promise. If you call me back, I'll answer. But don't don't promise me anything, right? Cuz I still got past trauma. And so about six, seven hours later, the phone rings and I pick it up and it's him. It's where we talk for seven hours straight as if nothing happened. Wow. Seven hours. He told me stories about when I was a kid, uh, one which fits the mode of this conversation. He said, you know, when you were one, two years old, we used to buy you things, right? Because I was seven when he left my mom. We used to buy you toys and you play with them for a couple of minutes but inevitably you throw them to the side, find your way into the the kitchen and start yanking out pots and pans out the kitchen cabinets. You bang on them and bang on them. We let you be be yourself until finally we couldn't take anymore. We come and pick you up and you just have a fit. You lose it, right? And my whole body felt numb. And from that, I derived that I was born to be in the kitchen. I've always loved being in the kitchen. Uh, At the core of it, I love cooking, but it's the hospitality that does it for me. It's serving people, Seeing empty plates come back, people saying like, "Oh my God!" Don't you know the whole unbutton your Itus. buttons, sitting back and like, "Oh my gosh, that was great." The whole taking a picture of your food—that's what does it for
0: me. That's applause for yeah. you.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's amazing. It's amazing. So when when I get that feeling, I want to share that feeling with other people, and I only exist in recreating
0: that same experience. What did you? So you had a youth in the kitchen. And you had learned a lot. Were you studying who who was it mom, grandma, who was really It was mom. It, it was mom and
1: a lot of trial and error. I remember the first meal that I cooked up, I would think I was twelve. And I did tot ramen. Everybody I knew ate top ramen. And I, you know, made some tot ramen and put ketchup on it or tomato sauce or whatever. <laughs> I can look back and one hundred percent with all honesty tell you it was disgusting.
0: I don't remember how it tasted,
1: but I know that it was disgusting. And I made this meal, and I served it to my sister, my younger sister. And, oh, man, you talking my biggest fan. <clears throat> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And she, uh, she was nine. Oh, this is great. And from there, I was like, let me do it again. I did it and did it and did it. And my mom, I'll never forget this. My mom used to come home because I would go – get my sister from school. When I got to middle school, I would pick my sister up and then we would walk, We were living in uh, San Jose, California at the time. we walk about two miles back to the apartment. And uh, I would get in the. I couldn't wait to get home. So I'm literally dragging her down the street. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. Get into the house and I cook something. My mom would come home three, four hours later. She, she worked as a, um, as an attorney and get home and a uh, legal secretary is the official name, but she worked for a patent office and we would, would get home and she would smell the food. She'd say like, Jarvis, have you been cooking? Yes, I did I'd say, all right, let's go. She beat me because I would use, I know it's like shocker.
0: <laughs> That's not where I thought the story was
1: going. I know neither did I, but she would beat me and she would give me a whooping because at the age of 10, 11, 12, you shouldn't be using the stove by yourself. That was the concept. The dichotomy that it produced was: we would sit down and eat the food, and I would say, "Like, well, but I did it." Yeah. If, <laughs> so, on one notion is, if you're punishing me, then why do you, why do we get to enjoy the spoils of my labor? On the other hand, it created a masochist because the next time I knew there's pain at the
0: end of this process. Is it worth it? Yes you wanted to cook so much that it was worth the beating.
1: Most definitely. Most definitely. We used to call them whoopings back then, but it was, we got beat, right? So I knew that if I turned that stove on without my mother being at the actual house or the apartment, I was going to get punished in one way or another, typically a beating. And I loved it so much that I still did it. I think that's what separates me now from, cooks who burn themselves, get a little nick, and they're like, oh, hell no. I quit. I'm done. <laughs> they take their jacket off. They walk out the kitchen. And I'm like, what? Tori, a couple, it's, not, it's funny now, but it's not, it wasn't funny back then. Um, about three or four months ago, I had a catering gig, but I wanted to extend my patio at my house. So I go on top of the roof and I'm like putting up OSP boards and plywood and shingles. And I'm, Literally working on a roof four hours before I have a catering gig for sixty people corporate catering, and I feel something like a little pin in the back of my my back, and I'm like, "What was that?" Rub the spot, keep going. A couple seconds later, I feel it again, and I, I'm like, rubbing in the back of my you know, my butt. I'm like, "What was that?" Matter of fact, I have my dad on the phone. Talking to my dad, I got my head.
0: So now y'all are friends.
1: Yeah, we're cool. Me and my dad talk. You have a
0: whole, a whole relationship now.
1: You talk more than I talk to my mother. Shit, it's crazy. But she's is she upset about that? Yeah, but she'll probably not ever <laughs> listen to this podcast,
0: right? I mean, I can she's, just see yeah, she's like, you she's, talk to that nigga more. You talk to me. Oh, what's going no, on?
1: What I didn't talk to my mom in probably six months, seven <laughs> months, and I know she's hot, but you know, I leave well alone. Anyway, I. I Cut, long, long, long story short, I got bit by a brown recluse in my, my butt. The top of the, my butt. That's throat. a spider? A spider. A spider a very deadly, venomous spider. No. No. Very, no. This is in Atlanta? This is in Atlanta. No. it's in Atlanta. So the shed where I was getting the shingles from, I was throwing them over my shoulder and carrying them up the ladder onto the roof, and a spider went down my shirt and bit me. As I'm talking to my dad, I can literally feel my words start to sound like this. <laughs> And I'm like, hold on. Dad, hold on one second. I climb down a ladder. I walk into the bathroom. My face looks like uh, Will Smith on Hitchcock. My face is so big. <laughs> so my face is so swollen. My tongue is swelling up. My throat is closing everything. So at this point, I'm like, I got to go to the ER. Yeah. I got a, a high, uh, electric car. So I type in the location. It takes me to the urgent care. I get out. I'm like, I got a bit of my flyer. <laughs> the lady's just like, Do you have insurance? And I'm like, I got a bit a flyer. You can't hear me. The doctor runs out, he stabs an EpiPen in one butt cheek and a steroid in another butt cheek. I'm so nervous. He's like, you gotta sit down and give it time to, to go through your body, and I gotta monitor you for 30 minutes. I'm like, look, I don't got man. I'm about to die. I literally cannot <laughs> breathe. To the point where I wanted to shove my finger down my throat and like push my tongue down. Yeah. It do, like, it doesn't set in quick enough. I go to the ER and they're like, we can't give you another shot. You just got to wait. Long, long story short, three hours later, I was catering an event. What? They gave me an EpiPen prescription. What? I left, went to Walgreens, fulfilled the EpiPen prescription, went to the store, bought the food, went to my house, cooked, delivered the food about 15 minutes late, which I've only been late twice in my life. I hate being late. I got bit by a spider and almost died. And I still catered that party uh, in downtown Atlanta. And I can trace that back to the masochism that I experienced as a kid, where if it don't kill you, literally, <laughs> if, it did, if it does not kill wow. you, you better keep going.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That was a long, long story. No, that's dope. That's dope. What'd you learn at Le Cordon Bleu?
1: Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> did you know I was a comedian? Um, nothing. I mean, I learned some very valuable lessons my first, I believe, three three months there, right? It's 15, no, 21-month program. And I learned some very valuable lessons as far as, like, the foundations, right? How to make bechamel sauce, Mornay sauce, um, the, all the mother sauces, knife skills, and everything like that. But oftentimes, I felt like a fish out of water because the people that were in my immediate circle, the, the class, we started out with 42 people in the class. Only three of us graduated, right? And I oftentimes- Out of 42- Students. Out of forty-eight students, only three, three of us three finished. Three graduated, yeah. Three graduated. And I had no idea they were yeah.
0: knocking people off like that.
1: It and it wasn't the school. It was like the people, right? So you go to IHOP after your foundations class and you start talking to people like, Hey, how'd you get into the cooking? And inevitably, 60, 70 percent of the people says, Oh, I made a waffle and my grandma loved the waffle, and she was like, You're a chef. You should go to culinary school. And so here I am. Two weeks later, they're gone.
0: Right? Mm. It's
1: like, you don't want to do this. You're going mm. right? And also look, Cordon Bleu is a for-profit school. So they just accepted anybody. Mm. But a lot of the people didn't have the passion or the patience for what it takes to be a chef. And you can spot them out. I can spot them now. If I meet somebody and they're like, oh, you're, you're, uh, I saw you on the cooking show. You're Chef Jarvis. I'm like, yeah. They're like, oh yeah, I'm a chef too.
0: I immediately look at their hands. That's the first thing I do. What do you see? in the, in a chef's hands
1: i see scars i see pain i see stories i see tattoos uh, other forms of masochism i see things that would have kicked anybody else out of this industry but you're still here i see uh, an attitude that's hidden behind professionalism i see character in their voice i can listen to the way they describe food and i'm like hey, you're not a chef big guy like you just you like cooking right and i can probably listen to you for 10 minutes and tell you why you like cooking but it isn't because you're a chef and I take that seriously. Wait,
0: what is, what is, what is the chef level of talking about food sound like that? Like the guy who loves talking about cooking is not reaching. Sure. Um, I put it like this
1: and I know listeners can't see these, but these two cloths that are behind you, you separate them and ask two people or ask one person, what color is this cloth? They'll say, Oh, it's gray. Say, what color is that cloth? And say, "It's gray. You ask somebody who's a professional photographer, what color is this cloth? Say, oh, this is a camo gray with spotted treatment and an illusion theory for, and it's like, whoa, you know what you're talking about. So when Much I talk more. to somebody and I'm like, oh, you're a chef, nice. Like, what do you cook? What do you love cooking? And they're like, man, ooh, I can cook a, a good steak. Oh, that's amazing. It's like, no.
0: So mm-hmm. what is your, what is your best dish?
1: That's the thing. I don't, I don't know that I have a best dish.
0: Well, what do you mean? Like if I asked you that question, what do you love to cook? Name a dish you love to cook.
1: That's the hard part. And let me tell you why I believe it's hard. and Then I'll answer your question. The difference between a chef and a cook is a chef creates and a cook replicates, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you ask me, what's my favorite dish to cook, it gently insinuates that I cook the same thing repetitiously right or that i know how to cook this thing better than i know how to create and that's just not the case for me i thrive in the concept of like here's a bunch of stuff make it happen versus this is my grandma's spaghetti can you can you make my grandma's spaghetti because a cook will say oh man I, hey i'm i'm famous for my crab and lobster mac and cheese make the bechamel sauce from scratch and you know x y and z it's like how often do you make it every tuesday and friday it's like cook you're cook. But if you ask me like, what do you what do you love to make? I tweak that sentence and say, What do I love to do? And I love to create. I love to come up with things on the fly. I love to go to someone's house and they say, Hey, we didn't go shopping. We didn't prepare for you, but we will. I say, No, don't worry about it. I open up their fridge and they're like, Oh, it's nothing in there. That's what fuels me when they're like, Don't even bother. That might as well be a bookshelf by that refrigerator, because there's nothing in there. And I open it up and I see, um, six pieces of bok choy. I see some grape jelly. I see uh, some noodle. And I think in food. I think in the finished product. And when I grab it, I grab it and they're like, what the hell is he about to make? And I throw it together and I present, I present it to them. And it's like an old piece of, not old, but a piece of sea bass that they had in the fridge. And uh, I sear that sea bass off. I finish it a uh, Monte Albert with some butter I do some lemon, I grab some capers, slice of some, slice of some olives, do a lemon caper butter sauce with olives. I might grab some prosciutto deep fried in butter, uh, w- mix with avocado oil, mount that on top, get some watercress that they had on a sandwich, just snatch it off, uh, do it as garnish and then make like a champagne vinaigrette because they have a 92 Marche Blanc there. I just put a little bit of that in there, some brown sugar, add some rice wine vinegar and they're like, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and to me, I'm like... This is this is why you brought me here.
0: What does eating healthy mean to you? com slash This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
1: Don't go get me a bunch of stuff because a cook can see a bunch of stuff and say, oh, I used to make this all the time. Let me do it again. But a chef can create something. Okay, wait.
0: I love that. But that was cook versus chef. So just within the realm of chef... What is the difference between being good and being great?
1: That's a good question. The Michelin star definition, which I hold dear is when somebody will go out of their way to eat your food. Mm -hmm. Right. If I'm here and it's a food desert, you got the the best air quote uh, burger in town, then I kind of have to eat the burger because I don't want to drive 15, minutes to get another whatever is in that location. But when I say, you know what, let me fly to Manhattan from Atlanta to go try X, Y, and Z restaurant, or I'm already going to be in North Carolina. So I'm willing to drive 27 minutes South just to experience that restaurant. That chef has something going on. Yeah, And not only that, when people call you back, right? Because the experience is one thing. Everybody wants to try something
0: new. But when people call you back, you know, you have something. The thing I'm real, I'm like, if we were talking about football, I could say these are the elements of a great football player. He's going to be fast. He's going to be aggressive. He's going to be able to read intellectually the way the coaches do. So he can be a coach on the field, right? He's going to be vicious, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so what are the elements that comprise these are the, the elements that a great chef has to have. Sure. Uh, I would say a dedication, a student of the
1: craft. You have to think in food. You have to see the finished product before anybody else can see it. You have to understand the dynamics of marrying food together. You have to understand uh, the chemistry behind it. Chefs are chemists. Yes. right. We change the property and the state of food through heat, sometimes acid, right? Fat. You have to be able to understand I can't throw butter in a high-heated pan without avocado oil or peanut oil because the smoke point, the point at which fat smokes is going to make that food. whatever I put in there next is going to taste like smoke before the food is done. If chicken is cooked at 165 internal temperature and let's say this uh, dairy fat butter burns at 135, if I cook the chicken and butter, the butter will burn before the chicken is done. So you have to understand the chemistry behind the food. Uh, and the last thing I, I would say is you have to have an appreciation for where the food comes from. You cannot short sell your ingredients. Um, and I got that from, that's one thing I did get from culinary school. One of my first chefs, Chef Michelitis, he made us peel grapes. I, I about to peel this. Have you ever peeled a grape
0: before? No. Have you peeled a blueberry? No.
1: He made us peel grapes and peel blueberries for a Nishwa salad. And I'm like, first of all, Why? blueberries don't go in a Nishwa salad. Hello. <laughs> but he's like, just hear me out and peel it. Why? Um, so f- nothing in nature is blue. Blueberries are not even blue, they're violet. But when you peel a blueberry, it's pretty much clear. It's transparent, right? But aside from that, the process of peeling a blueberry makes you slow down. You think about eating blueberries, most people grab a handful of blueberries and toss them in their mouth, or they're an accoutrement to something else. They add them to yogurt or granola or um, a chicken salad. But when you peel a blueberry, you're actually slowing down and you're enjoying it. You're enjoying different Different, you're using different senses to enjoy it, right? Most people eat on a bilateral level. They see it and they taste it. A lot of times you can smell it depending on your environment, but people really don't enjoy food as far as, as touch, right? Most people wear gloves when they experience food. But if you study a raspberry, if you study a strawberry, you see the little hair, the fibers, the follicles that stick up, You'll know that strawberries consume, although they're porous, strawberries consume flavor profiles better than blueberries and grapes because of the skin on the outside. So when you study things on that deep of a level, if you've if you probably never filled a raspberry with white chocolate ganache, you roll out some white chocolate ganache, put it in a pipette bag, and you literally cut a millimeter-sized hole in the bottom of your pastry bag, and you pipe out white chocolate ganache into a raspberry, which is very small. And then you toss them in the refrigerator. So the chocolate, you know, gets hard.
0: So wait, are you like, your whole life is food, you watch food, you read about food, like all that's that's you, all day long obsessed?
1: Not to the point of obsession, because there's
0: some stuff where I'm like, I don't even look good,
1: but I'm gonna eat it because I'm hungry. Right? <laughs> but there are other times where I can't enjoy something. I go out to a restaurant and I'm looking at everybody else's plate. Like, oh no, definitely not get the mashed potatoes, those came out of a box. Or um, let me tell you, part of this, uh, a part of where this goes wrong. I went to a famous steakhouse in Atlanta, known for their steaks. We were there about 10 o'clock at night, and I ordered a New York strip. No, I ordered a filet mignon. Ordered a filet mignon, and when the filet mignon came out, everybody else was enjoying their food, and I'm looking at it like this is skirt steak. I didn't even have to touch it. I was like, this is skirt steak, and my brother was there. He goes, bro, I already know you're going to send it back. But tell me, why do you, how do you know that skirt steak? What I told him was a filet mignon is round, right? Uh. But whenever they run out of filet mignons, they'll take skirt steak, which is long. It could be about five, six inches long. And they'll roll it up, <laughs> tie butcher's twine around it, and they'll grill it on both sides. They'll remove the butcher's twine and they'll put garnish on top of the steak, so you don't see like the pinwheel effect and the server came back and I explained it to him just as I explained, explained it to you. He's like, Oh, sir, that's a $60 steak. I can guarantee you. It's not, it's not uh, what you're saying, but I'll go tell the chef. I can read lips from, did you, did you,
0: in that, did you say to the server,
1: I'm a chef? No, but my brother did. I don't like telling people that I'm a chef. I try to hide it as long as possible.
0: Okay. But at the point when you're disputing with the server, in a restaurant, like the food, it's, I mean, would you not like say, Hey, like, like I'm I'm in this industry. I know what I'm, I'm not just a guy who watched a show and has an opinion. Like, I know what I'm talking, like we're in the same industry here. I know what I'm talking about. I didn't tell
1: him because to him, it's irrelevant because he didn't make the steak, but I watched him go back and tell the chef and I didn't have to tell the chef with those words that I'm a chef and I've been doing the this for 20 got it.
0: years. The chef knew. The chef knew that he's talking to a chef. He
1: knew. He looked out the window and he took his apron off and came and stood beside me. He said, I'm sorry. Is there anything else I can get you? We ran out of steaks. I said, no, but I will tell you the integrity of your food should be your main source. You said that? Yes. I said, the integrity of your food, should, that should be your main focus, bro. And for you to send me out skirt steak, which costs 13 bucks, and I'm paying $60 for filet mignon with all the sides. You said that? Yes. And I, that that was my way of telling him I'm a chef, right? Right. And my brother at that point was like,
0: yeah, that's my name. right?" So my yeah. brother was like, but you're not a trying chef. to stun on him. No I, no, I did not get what I ordered. And I know enough to understand what you did and what happens. And right is right. Wrong is wrong. But it's interesting you said that because you're like, what you said communicated to them. I'm a chef. Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe the server didn't catch it, but the chef clearly called it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, I I mean, I feel the same way. When someone says
1: something about my food, and we're all artists, we're culinary artists. When someone says something about my food, I can tell if they are, you know, some dickhead that came off the street and just having a bad day. Yeah. Or if they know what the hell they're talking about. Right? I can tell. I can tell. If they say, hey, my champagne vinaigrette tastes a little tart. Like, okay, well. Champagne vinaigrette is supposed to be tart. It has rice wine vinegar in it. (laughs) So, you know, What I I apologize. I'm sorry that, uh, you know, to your taste buds, it's a little off. Is there anything I can do to fix it? But that's hospitality. Mm. I don't have to be wrong to apologize to you, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because you're here for the experience. You can get food anywhere. You're here for the experience. Mm -hmm. So even if the food isn't to your liking, to your own misfortune or fault, I
0: apologize and I get you something different. Do you want to have a restaurant? No. Why not? Because I assume you would have had one if you wanted one, so you're choosing to not use your expertise in everything that way. Yeah, uh, two kids is enough. <laughs> two kids is enough. <laughs> three year old twins. Yeah, three three year old twins. Yeah. But but you but you surely you could have had a restaurant anytime in the last ten years if you right if you wanted to. I could have. So you've made a choice to not go that direction.
1: When I work in other people's restaurant, I see how much it stresses them out. Most chefs are addicted to something. And I will be bold enough to say that. Like an actual, you mean like a chemical. An an actual addiction that changes their mood or mind state, right? Most chefs are that, right? Whether it's overeating, whether it's alcoholism, drugs, uh, whatever the addiction could be. Really? Most chefs have an addiction to something because we are in this constant mind state of other other people, other people, other people, other people, putting them first. And then by the time it's all said and done, when I cook lobster and crab and bluefin tuna for people, I go home and I might eat Chick-fil-A. Really? I might just get the sandwich, not even the fries. I might eat. (laughs) I mean, my ex would be like, what are you doing eating another Reese's cup? What, 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 why are you eating these things? Because my main focus is to feed and serve other people. And when it's time to feed and serve myself, I no longer have the energy. So by the time I get home after doing a 21-day shoot on a Marvel set, I'm like, I don't have the energy to cook. And if I'm not married, but if I don't have a wife at home who's like, my husband is grinding it out for an 18-hour day, let me make sure food is ready when he gets home, even if it's 3 o'clock in the morning. When I get home, I'm going to take a shot of something and I'm going to sleep. And that habitually becomes a
0: problem. You have none of these issues.
1: Um, Every year, intentionally... I fast from alcohol just to prevent that.
0: Every year?
1: Every year from the first of the year, the first day, January the 1st to March the 9th, which is my mm. brother's birthday. Mm. I do two months without alcohol just to make sure that I never
0: succumb to the addiction. Interesting. Interesting. You said you think in food. What does that look like? <clears throat> um, I think in food. So
1: most people, when... Let me let me let me tell you to you this way. When I cater weddings, I always ask what the venue is because people have these outlandish ideas of where they want me to prepare food. And then I reel them back in and say a rooftop sounds great, but you also want flambe and the wind is going to be too much to keep the flambe on fire. So we probably shouldn't do flambe. We should do creme brulee. And they're like, oh, so we still get the fire but it doesn't have to stay on fire. When I do flambe, I like to roast in the pan, I sear it off, add the alcohol, add some butter, caramelize it, pour it on top of whatever dessert I'm serving and bring it to the table on fire. That's how I do flambe. But if it's windy on a rooftop, I can't do that. So I'm not just thinking about how the food is going to taste. I'm thinking about where we are when we serve the food. Oh, I want fried fish. I want fried grouper at my wedding. First question I ask, is it going to be indoors? Right. So I'm thinking further into the future when it comes to the food
0: than most people are, because I'm like, you don't want all your guests leaving smelling like fried fish. But the main reason why you don't want a restaurant is because it's so stressful. It's stressful and people steal. People steal so much and they
1: give away free food. You're talking about the, the employees, employees stealing from yes. the restaurant? Every restaurant I've been in, somebody's carrying out a case of ribs from the back door, put it in their cousin's car. Happens. It's like, hey, come on. People are pouring triple shots for their best friend that just got into town, only charging them for orange juice. It's like there's so much more than food. I love food. I love serving people. I don't want to have to worry about why we're missing $14,000 this month in, you know, revenue or products. It's just too much of a headache.
0: Okay. I would, you, you have so many ideas in terms of cooking, in terms of showmanship and experience and branding. I would think maybe you would want to create your thing. So you know what I, how I get that out?
1: I've been to 42 countries and every time I used to go, before I had my children, every time I would go to a country, I would do what's called leftovers dinner series. I would do pop-up dinners and people would come to whatever location I chose. A lot of times it was my house on the golf course in Atlanta. And they would come to my house and I set the entire house up like a restaurant and it would fit 21 people in there. And I would do five, six, eight course dinners in my house and people would pay upwards of $350 per person just to come and experience that. And to me, that was way better than owning a restaurant because it's very minimal overhead. I'm in the comfort and confines of my own home. And people are traveling outside of their specific norm to eat my food, which to me is a, a pat on the back, right, right? right? But a restaurant is like, it's just too much of a headache and I don't get the same result.
0: So that's, that moment of service quenched it for you. The day-to-day business of a restaurant, is too, it's too much business, it's too much- It's too clerical. Theft, it's too much other things.
1: And also an executive chef, I was the executive chef at Google for a long time. An executive chef is not in the kitchen. Sous chef is in the kitchen because the executive chef comes up with this menu. He prepares it for the sous chef and all of the team. If that's the dynamic of the kitchen, chef, sous chef, you know, he prepares it for the team and then the sous chef replicates it. And then the chef goes out to do other things, meet and greet, talk to people, shake hands. One of my clients was Coca-Cola. I knew everybody that worked at Coca-Cola when I was a chef at Google. But guess what? If the air culvert comes out and it's too crispy, I take the blame for that. Although I had nothing to do with the process that time and I just couldn't do it for too long. So I, hey, hey, guys, nice to see you. Excuse me one second. I go back and I rip a hole into whoever's cooking air cover. right? Spinach, I don't cook spinach. I wilt it, I hand wilt spinach, which means I pour some olive oil in a bag. I add all the spinach in a bag or a bowl and I physically hand squeeze it to wilt it. And then I put it on the bottom of whatever food that we're serving because it's the cheapest ingredient and it warms up from the steak that's on top of it. It warms up from the roasted pork chop on top of it. So the, the spinach is cooked by the carryover heat from whatever is on top of it. But you see people, they start out with a bushel of spinach and they end up with three servings. Can't do it. So I used to go in the kitchen. I'm saying, what the hell are y'all doing? Why doesn't this plate have spinach on it? Oh, we ran out, how? How? It's not even eight o'clock yet. We have to go until 10, how? And I would look at them and they would cook the hell out the spinach. They would leave it to the side. And they would put a whole cup of spinach and I'm like, this kind of babysitting, I just, I'm not prepared for, for the rest of my life. And then I had kids and I'm like, I will never have a restaurant. <laughs> I would never have a restaurant.
0: So the vision is culinary entrepreneur, right? How how does that, like, What do you, what is the path?
1: So when I look at my life, I've done everything that I've wanted to do.
0: Wow. Right?
1: I can literally say, culinary realm, I've done everything. And some of those things changed because early on, I did want a restaurant. I wanted to work at Hell's Kitchen. I wanted to meet Gordon Ramsay. I wanted to do all of those things. Uh, but every, you know, every stepping stone on the way either pushed me forward or branched off to in a new direction. When I was young, it was like just satisfying people. I wanted people to look at the food and say, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I wanted to do that more. So that stepping stone pushed me forward to go to Le Cordon Bleu. Once I got to Le Cordon Bleu, I'm like, I want to own a restaurant. I want people to to come to my restaurant. And I want to be a Michelin-star restaurant. And then I worked at Michelin-star restaurants. And I'm like, these people are miserable. Like, they're miserable. You ask people after work. I'm working in La latouille and in, in the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And after work, you ask people like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Oh, nothing. I'm going to sleep. Wake up at 3 in the morning. But you're, you live in Paris. You're not going to. No. So, you, what, are, what about your family? I don't have a family. What's, what's family? And I'm like, what? You don't want a family? I work at the one of the top bristle. I'm like, wow. So, I'm leaving tomorrow. And then I go to Ireland and I work at Michelin Star Restaurant in Kilkenny. And I'm only there for two days before I realize like they're just as miserable as the people in Paris. And it's like that Michelin Star Restaurant status. Once you get it, you think that your thirst will be quenched, but it's not. It's replaced with a thirst. Thirst of keeping it, and now you go from attaining it to like holding on to it. Next thing you wake up, you're 56. You got a dog that's sick, and you know you have no dreams and no morals, and you, your life just sucks. <laughs> like you're wow, you're picking, okay. You're picking time out back for the rest of your life. Um, I just didn't. So I didn't want wait, that.
0: what is your path? Just the next five years? What is culinary entrepreneur? look like in the next chapter? It's, it's really passing down what
1: I've learned to, to my children, teaching them how to cook. It's, it's nothing in regards to business, if that's what, what your question is. What had. are you,
0: retiring?
1: Yes. I'm getting really? into like real estate and um, investments because I've done everything. And if I, I used to ask people all the time, two questions. If the world had more people like you, would it be better or worse? And if you got paid a billion dollars today, what would you still do? Right?
0: Billion dollars tax free. What would you still do? I love how you said tax free. Like, like there's some tax bracket like, oh, <laughs> they gave me a billion, but then they check <laughs> they tax me fifty percent. Right, oh, right. I only have five hundred million. Billion. What am I gonna do with this? But <laughs> if you
1: got a billion, what would you still do? And my answer is I would cook for people free. I would teach people how to cook. So I want to elevate other people's game in the kitchen. And I also wanna destroy the subconscious notion, notion that like cooking is a big to do. Cooking is extremely difficult. Uh, People are scared to cook. I want to teach people how to cook and not be fearful of the process.
0: So wait, give me some basic advice on how to be a better home cook. Better home cook, Um,
1: burn something, burn something.
0: I do that all the time.
1: Well, you've gotten better because
0: hopefully <laughs> you haven't burnt the same thing to it. <laughs> I don't, but- I don't necessarily know like, am I going to burn this? Am I not? I'm trying to get, you know, I get a lot of like, I make like a steak, like once a week. Sometimes I can get it right to like get the crunchiness that we talked about. My hard reaction. With it also, with it being like pink, cause I don't want red, but medium is fine. So tell me
1: how you, how you're making this steak. Yeah. And this goes into what I want to do because people tell me like, oh, I just can't get this risotto right. I'm like, what kind of rice are you using? You
0: know, okay. Jasmine. So, so I like, get a ribeye. Okay. That's what I prefer from Whole Foods. I usually, I get the pan. I put the oil in. Usually it's, it could, it might be corn oil. It might be olive oil. Depends. Don't use olive oil. Okay. All right. There's one right there. All right.
1: The smoke point is too high. So we go back to the smoke corn point. oil use. I would use peanut oil. If you have no allergies in your house.
0: No, 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 no. no. All right. Peanut oil. That's first. Okay. So then, I mean, I, I pull the steak out. I wash it. I, I salt and pepper it. Why do you wash the steak? because if i didn't black people <laughs> <laughs> you didn't the fucking black twitter would destroy you <laughs>
1: oh my god you didn't
0: fucking. i'm never you shaking his hand turning to watch his anything you do with the kid you are black people like you didn't right. wash the you didn't oh wash my wash the god. chicken oh it's my god the world like, is going to come to them uh, salt and pepper and uh, you know but but the the right point of like heat and whatever when uh, and sometimes i'll melt butter and pour that on because i can't with the braising it's just too boring for me <laughs> <laughs> and i can't get the butter to like and then to do it on the thing i'm like i can't i'll just but why, why can't i just just reduce the butter here and then pour it on what's the difference
1: so you have a gas stove or electric
0: electric another problem uh maybe it's gas Maybe it's gas. Does it create a flame when you cook? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you have gas. Look, he's so stupid. He doesn't even know. No, he no has I gas would electric. <laughs> do you cook steaks? You? I do. No, right, so, so it's gas. Yes, there's
1: an actual flame. So what I, you asked me earlier, do I think in food? I heard about maybe nine things that you said where I can stop you and say that's wrong. Not just the Please. olive oil, right? Please. So I can ask you like, what kind of salt do you use?
0: Well, um, I can't tell you, but I can I can't right now tell you what brand or whatever, but my wife and my daughter are like way into salt and like ha- they buy like esoteric, like really beautiful salts that are like really nice. So that, so that's what I'm using. That's great, but it's probably fine, right? It's, it's probably fine
1: salt. Yeah. And you want coarse salt. Okay. Right. Because you don't want the salt to infuse into the meat before the meat is 100% cooked on that surface. So you use coarse salt or kosher salt. A really thick salt that you sprinkle, and you can see it fall. Yeah, that's the salt that you use when you're cooking, cooking steak or something that has to be in the pan for a longer period of time. If you're sautéing vegetables and you're just throwing it in a wok or something, sautéing it, flipping it around, and moving it around, esoteric salt is fine. Pink Himalayan sea salt, all of that stuff is fine. But when you're cooking a steak, thick, coarse rock salt or kosher salt is the best, right? Okay. And it also creates a very minuscule separation between the meat and the pan. Right. So you want your meat to rest on the pan in the fatty areas so that the fat can render and melt and help cook the steak. And only when you flip it do you put it to one side of the pan, lift the pan up on this side, and you add butter. Let the butter melt on top of the steak. Right. There are so many fine points where we can get into like smoke point and the types of salt. But the one thing I want you to remember is always add oil to a hot pan, always add food to hot oil.
0: Right. I definitely have never done that. So next time you cook steak, <laughs> I, I would definitely th- like turn the pan on, like turn the burner on and then put the oil in right away. Who <laughs> <Ooh, no>. knew? <laughs> See, these are the cooking show mistakes that I watch.
1: I'm like, yeah, I'm just watching football. Like,
0: and then you, you, people forget like well, they're you, actors. So they're going to be never, like, oh, oh, it's great. It, it, tastes- would, it would never occur to me that it matters the temperature of the pan. When you put in the oil. Oh, certainly. certainly let's say
1: I'm cooking a piece of fish to 120 and I grab the fish out of the refrigerator, which is at 32 degrees. And I put this pan on the stove and all within 10 seconds, I turn the fire on, which that pan is room temperature. So we're calling it hundred degrees, right? I turn on, depending on where you keep your pans, but I turn on the flame. I grab this piece of fish out of the refrigerator. I pour some room temperature oil in that pan and I throw the fish right on top. I am now poaching that fish because the temperature of the fish is going to bring down the temperature of the pan. It's going to bring down the temperature of the oil because it's colder, right? So instead of getting it here, I'm throwing fish in and it's bringing it down here, which means it's, I'm boiling or poaching that fish and it's not going to create that sizzle, that Maillard reaction. Instead, I get the pan hot. So the time I pour the oil in, the oil is rising to the temperature of the pan. Once I start seeing that glimmer of smoke, then I add my fish. You want to make sure your fish is is patted dry because oil and water doesn't mix. So you see all these scars
0: (laughs) on my arm?
1: I can tell you that oil and water doesn't mix because sometimes
0: I've been burned by that. Okay. I mean, like the thing for me is like cooking the steak and then I get to where the outside is where I want it to be and I start to cut in to make sure that I'm I've gotten to medium because I don't really like it rare. Mm-hmm. It's too red, it's too much. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, you know, it's just it's it's crunchy at the top and red in the middle and I'm like, "Do <laughs> you touch it with your hands?" No. Can I show you something? Sure. See your hand.
1: <clears throat> so just relax your hand. Okay. You relax, right? Okay. All right? Everything's relaxed. Okay. Directly on your leg. And let me show okay. you this. This right here is a rare steak.
0: Okay. okay. On just the thumb. Okay. Okay.
1: Right. Use your hand.
0: Wait, wait, you can... wait, 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 wait. So when my hand was open, you said it's rare. Yep. This
1: is a rare steak.
0: And when, it's, when I touched my thumb and my first finger. Four so fingers
1: to the thumb, that's medium rare. Right. Oh. And you're not squeezing. You're just making
0: the connection. Just right, right. It's right.
1: medium rare. Middle finger. Okay medium For the change,
0: <laughs> so when I touch my middle finger, the the muscle under my thumb is a little tighter. Right. So he's saying that chunk
1: under your thumb. do you even know what that's called. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. And you go to the next one that's medium well, and your pinky is well done.
0: <laughs> so this is what the meat should taste like. I'm not loving thinking about my hand. <laughs> when most we were people talking don't. about steak. Right. Most people don't. Giving Jeffrey Dahmer vibe. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, not biting your but hand. I but did just, that. I did that.
1: When you, poke, when you poke that steak, right? When you're cooking that steak and you flip it over and you're trying to figure out what temperature it is, a very novice chef would take it out the pan, flip it upside down, and slice the bottom of the steak and fold it open to see what color yeah. it is in the middle. Yeah. Imagine if it takes six seconds to do that, but you have to cook 10,000 steaks. You'd be doing that all night. Well, right? I know, but I only got one. But when you only have one, you can literally touch your hand why, why, and then poke the steak. I, why can't I just cut it? You, you could. You could. But in my realm of thinking as a chef, that's a mistake. Having to cut it is a mistake because sure. you can do this and be a, one step closer to being a better cook or, or you know, a better chef or better cook mm. than having to take out the pan, put it on the cutting board, cutting it, opening it up. Well, I just cut it right in the pan. That's another mistake.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why why are you trying to take it out of the cutting board? It's just for me. I'm
1: kidding. But if you cut into your pan, the next time it won't be nonstick or it won't, you know, (laughs) there's just so much. There's so uh, many nuances behind cooking, but I love them. I love this. What
0: else can I do to better season the thing? So
1: people eat steaks because they taste like steak. It tastes like the meat, the cut, right? Um, like Wagyu, when I leave here, I'm gonna, I think it's called Shian to get Wagyu steak. And I'm gonna eat it because it tastes like Wagyu steak. So salt and pepper is all you need. You just have to cook it and create that Maillard reaction where chefs create flavor. That's the only thing you need to do. Salt, pepper, and the Maillard reaction. Outside of that, where you eat the steak plays a difference, right? If you're about to eat this steak and your mouth has been salivating while you're cooking, but then your wife comes home and sits on your lap, and you smell her Chanel five perfume. That's going to throw off your senses immediately, right? And so the taste of that steak is going to be slightly different on a molecular level. It's going to be slightly different than if she'd never walked in the door. If you eat it outside and you're smelling fresh cut grass, your steak is going to taste different, right? If someone uses the bathroom and they spray Febreze all in the air, your steak is going to taste different. So where you eat your steak and what you drink with your steak plays a role. What are you saying we should drink with it? Uh, so for your, your cut of steak, I would say a medium or full body red wine
0: would go good. Like, uh, like what grape?
1: Uh, so Cabernet Sauvignon is a good, or Pinot Noir, if you like it a little bit more gentle and calm. So a Cabernet Sauvignon is a, is a, a great blend for a steak. Yeah. Or you can get a great varietal blend. I know Trader Joe's has a lot of like really inexpensive wines where you can taste varietal blends and then you can start focusing on the year over the varietal.
0: So you say you didn't learn shit at Cardam blue, but you spent a bunch of time in Spain mm-hmm. and I bet you learned a lot cooking in Spain. I learned a ton cooking in Spain. One of my, um, I don't really have favorites,
1: but one of my most requested dishes is paella. Paella, people ask me for paella all the time. seafood paella. And the process of cooking paella is very daunting to a novice chef or a home cook because there's like maybe 25 steps to making a very good paella and it takes a long time. So most people just like, oh, I skipped the paella. I'll make this gumbo. It's like non rue gumbo. But in Spain, I learned how to make flan, all types of desserts. I'm not a dessert guy. I don't really cook or bake desserts, but I, I learned how to make flan. I learned how to make creme brulee. I learned how to make patechou, patechou paste, pastries, all of that. But my one thing was sangria for the alcoholic beverage side. And paella for the food. I mean, when I think about
0: the way that Spanish people and French people, as you go further south, look at food as this <clears throat> communal thing, mm-hmm. this multi-course thing, and this celebration of it, as opposed to Americans who really want to get in and out sure. of the experience as fast as possible most of the time, um, that joy that attends the Spanish experience of food, that's got to have a big, a uh, big role. Yeah. It's just a different, a different quality of life out
1: there. I was there for six months in uh, Mallorca, Spain, and their quality of life is just different. They hold values, higher values to different things. So for food, the first day I got to Mallorca, I'll never forget. I'd never heard a siesta before, mm. but I get to Mallorca and they come and pick me up. They bring me to the hotel I'm going to be working at. Uh, you know, I get my, my uniform, whatever, I drop my bags off and I go down to cook and it's probably 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, all right, let's go. I'm fresh out of culinary school tour. I'm like, oh, let's go. I've learned what I need to learn. Let's do it. The chef goes, dude, Benaki, Benaki, mira la, la bolsa de la And I'm like, what? He's just like, cut the onions. I'm Like, no, but I have a culinary degree. He's like, cut the onions. Okay, I'll cut the onions. I go cut the onions. Midway into cutting the onions, everybody leaves the kitchen. I'm like, is this a fire drill? Like, why is everybody leaving? Mm. So I'm like, I finished cutting my onions, I'm washing dishes, and the there's a, a brown skin or black chef from um, from Senegal, who's lived in Spain for like 30 or 40 years at that point, and she comes in and she goes, Negro, which just means black man. <laughs> right? She goes, Negro, tu que haces? And I'm like, who are you talking to? First of all, I'm like, call <laughs> yeah, you me Negro. You need to calm down with that Negro. Right? Right? But she's like, so qué What are you doing? I'm like, you're la Platos. I'm cleaning the plates. And she's like, No, vamos in the restaurante. Like, go in the restaurant. Like, Why are you so mad? I walk in the restaurant. Everybody that I was just witnessing cooking in the kitchen is now eating and drinking like beer. And I'm like, Y'all are drinking beer in front of y'all, but with your boss. And that was my introduction to Siesta. So she's like, No, no, it's not it's okay. Drink. And so I'm drinking beer. I'm drinking uh this is lunch. This is after lunch. Two o'clock. Yeah, two o'clock in the the afternoon, and everybody's getting wasted because dinner doesn't start over there until eight, nine o'clock at night. Right. So everybody's getting wasted. I got (laughs) faded. When I tell you I was drunk as hell, and I went in the kitchen and tried to play it off, but I get giddy. Back then I got really giddy when I was drunk. She walked over to me, and she goes, and everybody else who's been doing this for 15 years, they can drink as much as they want and still function just fine. And I'm, I'm so faded. She walks up to me. She goes, Negro, tu baracho. Are you drunk? <laughs> and I'm like, I just remember saying this word for as long as I could hold my breath. See. Si. <laughs> She's like, get <"Que> cho. <laughs> so I go sleep it off. I wake up the next day. And that was just my first introduction to siesta. And you just have a different quality of life where it's like work like hell, but go take care of yourself. Go have fun. Yeah. Because you're not going to get off work until one o'clock in the morning.
0: Yeah. No, the whole town stops. That's right at one or two o'clock, everybody goes home. Go to sleep. You know, one to three, nothing happens. And they, and they don't even start back up at three sharp. Mm-mm. If you go to the big cities, they, they don't do it like this. But when you go into the smaller towns, things open back up around three, maybe three yeah. 15, maybe three 30. it's back open if the door is open. Right. right? What's the rush? Calm down. Do you...
1: <laughs> and that to a chef is benign. Like, Telling somebody to, so I was watching Hell's Kitchen back at the hotel the first time because I don't watch cooking shows uh, for the reasons I discussed earlier. But I was watching Hell's Kitchen and um, the girl goes, I don't have enough green beans. Just slow down the tickets. And Gordon Ramsay turns around and goes, What? Slow down. <laughs> I'm like, what? Go home. I was <laughs> like, I would have sent her home for that too. You don't slow down. So when you get to Spain and they're like, You order paella, and two hours later, you're still sitting there drinking sangria. In America, we're flipping. We're going on Yelp. We're going on Twitter. But there, you're just like, it comes when it comes.
0: Wait, if you're in the kitchen in America with Gordon or whatever, and there's too many tickets, there's too many orders coming in, what are you supposed to do? Cook faster. (laughs) How can you cook faster? It takes as long as it takes. Sometimes
1: it does. Sometimes it does not. But so you see this? It says mise en place. i tattoo on my forearm says mise en place. It's French for everything in its place, right? You didn't carry these mics in here today. You didn't carry the camera equipment in here today. This backdrop wasn't put up when we walked in here. So this interview should take an hour, right? But to someone who is not this, someone who is not you and doesn't have this amazing team that you have, if I get here at 3.30 and you guys are still setting up no camera equipment, it's going to be five o'clock before we leave. So mise en, mise en place is having everything in its place, which means if I know uh, it's, it's a dance in your head, right? If I know it takes 14 minutes to cook this steak, it takes nine minutes to cook this potato, and it takes three minutes to cook asparagus, which one am I going to put on first? Obviously the steak. And when a steak is three or four minutes in, I'm going to start on the mashed potatoes, and when the mashed potatoes has four minutes left I'm going to start on the asparagus because everything has to finish at the same time right that's not common sense to everybody most people are like, let me go ahead and start on this potato and then I'm going to cook the asparagus and then I'll start on the steak and 14 minutes mm, later mm. your asparagus is ice cold mm. your your mashed potatoes are are tight because you've whipped the hell out of them because you have absolutely nothing else to do My
0: wife does that to me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll make the meat for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't make it, make it, but you know, like I, okay, I dropped it. Oh, well, let me just whip up a salad. Yeah. baby, don't. No, it'll just take a second. Ten
1: minutes later, she's still whipping up a salad.
0: I mean, she could do it fast and it's beautiful and it's a great salad, but now my
1: meat is cold. Because there you go. Of- there you go. It's the timing of kitchen
0: and and preparation. Uh, So I ask everyone, what does being black mean to you? Because being a black chef, you stand on an amazing tradition, Mm -hmm. right? So what does being black mean to you and where does it come into the work? We are so creative. Like Black people are so creative and we're dope at whatever we do.
1: Even the stuff we do on accident, we're just dope. And I think there have been black chefs before me that have been in spaces that make it easier for me to, to exist in. And while I don't hold people on pedestals, uh, so to speak, I don't say like, oh man, I you know that, that guy I just wanna be that guy. I more so think the people that came before me that look like me for allowing me the opportunity to walk into a Fortune 500 company and cater a meal for chief executives. Uh, I think the ability to be creative comes from me being broke when I was a kid my mom having to raise three kids with very little money. And, you know, my dad, obviously not being here at the time, um, just having to think on the fly, right? Having to think in some of the other podcasts I listen to you, you ask people like, you know, what's your superpower? And what's next? Yeah, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> this is not my podcast. I'm sorry. No, it's cool, it's cool. But um, I also think that being black is as token as it might seem, it's a superpower because for me, where I come from, I've had to pull rabbits out of hats where other people had full zoos. And they're like, let's just go in the pantry and pick whatever we want. But I'm like, all right, what's left on his plate that I can take? What can I add from him? You got something in that wine bottle? No, 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 don't throw it away. I'll take it. And now I'm making a Marshawn de Vin sauce, right? So the bout of creativity comes with like my culture. A lot of times it can be a negative because... I should have the ability to like live in wealth. And when I lived in West Africa and seeing all of those beautiful black people eat the same thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and be joyous, be happy, eating wache, which is a rice dish. And they're like, oh, wache, wache, wache. And maybe they had a piece of goat the size of your thumb. And the mom puts the goat in the middle of the table and they're like, oh, chale, mommy, we got goats. We got goats. Oh, mommy, we got goat. And their kids are dancing. And I'm like, that's literally just a bone there's no meat on that but when I think about like how I grew up we used to have pizza nights and baked potato nights where my mom could feed everybody with you know 40 cents to the to the child you go in the store you pick your own potato you get some cheese. we should get one little packet of cheese and we' would share it the little free sour creams that you get from KFC and maybe so like a little stem of chives so each kid she fed that night for for you know, 30 40 cents and that was creative. what My mom did. So now my dinner series is called leftovers dinner series where people literally just bring me stuff. It could be leftovers from your fridge. As long as it's not expired or bad, you bring me stuff and I look at it and I say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Everybody take a seat. Make D grab the wine. And I create something I'm doing it since I was a kid.
0: That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I was going to ask you what's your superpower, but you just said. Never mind, you, go ahead, ask me, me a, ask me. Ask me. <laughs> what, what, is, what is your superpower, the thing that you do better than other people that has led you to the success you've had? So, yeah, in the kitchen, it's just that level of
1: creativity. Out of the kitchen, it's being able to connect with people. I can read people, right? So when people come in and they're like, oh, I want to try the steak. And I'm like, mm, no, you don't you want to try this pants here at sea bass with uh, a pineapple reduction in orange marmalade compote. <gasps> I never would have thought. Of, yeah, I'll try that. And I bring it to them and they're like, thank you so much for making, how did you know? Like you're wearing a sundress in December. Like I can see like you think outside the box. Wow. I literally told her that I, I wanted to wear a sundress over the, bl- and like conversations like that are a dime a dozen. When I used to have my, my pop-up dinners, to walk out and say like you look like a red wine kind of person, like I wasn't even gonna drink tonight, but I love red wine. What do you have? Like I have a, a eighty seven Chianti. <gasps> I just told my husband I wanted Chianti. I'm like let's do it, right? So just that ability
0: to connect with people. Thank you, thank you, man. Thank you for having me here. That's
1: awesome.
0: Thanks so much to Chef for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our engineer is Claire McHale. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests Because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight.